Right, good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Professor Charles Goodhart, and I'm a retired professor of economics, money, and banking uh, here at LSE. And uh, the reason I'm here this evening uh, is that I'm very pleased and proud to have been a friend and colleague of Annette and Matty for quite a number of years, that I would emphasize I'm a lot older than she is. Um, <laughs> Uh, but this year in particular, uh, Annette and her colleague Martin Helwig uh, have written one of the most important books uh, in the field in which we've been jointly working, Annette and I, uh, Financial and Banking Regulation. Uh, the book which she's going to be talking about is entitled The Banker's New Clothes. Uh, it's been uh, very much in the news. Uh, indeed, there is a reference to it today uh, in John Plender's column in the FT. But you'd much rather hear about the book from its author than from me, so I'm delighted to um, give the floor to Annette, uh, one of the two authors of The Banker's New Clothes. Annette, the floor is yours. Thank you, Charles. It's, I really appreciate it because Charles came from a trip and he's here today. Uh, but he's heard me uh, recently, so it's okay for him to sleep. I think he's jet-lagged. Uh, but I really uh, appreciate that he came here because Charles is among the people uh, who kept me sane uh, for a, a while as I entered, actually. He's been there much longer than me, the field of... Uh, uh, of banking and banking regulation, and I kept looking to Charles to tell me that I'm not crazy uh, a number of times. Uh, of course, he would also call me and say, hey, somebody wrote an op-ed in Financial Times, and we need to do something about it, but I got no time. Uh, why don't you do something about it? Uh, so anyway, uh, thank you, Charles, and thank you for all your... Uh, Support and mentorship of my uh, my entering this uh, this field of uh, banking, this strange field of banking. I want to thank you all for coming today, and we have actually, I believe, a group here uh, from uh, who are graduates of the Stanford uh, uh, Graduate School of Business. Thank you for coming. Um, I will remind you of it, this discussion. Will remind you of a course you may have taken at Stanford uh, that you probably promptly forgot, as we, as we often suspect, uh, but, uh, but it'll sound a little bit familiar, some of it, but I'm, I'm probably not going to get to the technical issues that you learn about in business school. Okay, let me go to the book. So Charles, uh, The Banker's New Clothes, I'll explain what this refers to, but the subtitle is really what I'm going to focus on most because that's really why we needed to write this book. The Banker's New Clothes is only the part about why, why, we, why it needed to be written in the way it was written, but the premise of the subtitle is that something is wrong with banking, so that when we ask what's wrong, we are implicitly saying something is wrong, or maybe a few things are wrong, and I'll tell you what I think they are. And what to do about it also suggests that there is something to do about it, which we also believe. Uh, and then the banker's new clothes are going to be part of the reason that it's not actually been done, which involve... Banker's New Clothes is the word, the expression we use in the book for flawed 
uh, arguments and claims that are made and that have sort of confused and derailed uh, the discussion and need to be uh, challenged and removed from the discussion if they're flawed because we should not make policy on flawed claims that are in one way or another is it just false or different kinds. It's a whole collection, a whole wardrobe, if you will. Um, so uh, that's my cover page. Oh, I didn't mean for that. Oops, did I send the right slides? There was the wrong cover there. I'm a little bit concerned that I sent the wrong slides. Okay. Because I did revise my slides, so I might have some extra slides. This was, uh, if this is the cover was true, then uh, it's slides that are slightly more technical than I intended for today, but I'll just skip the, the technical slide. Uh, okay, so what's wrong with banking? I have a lot of bullets here. Uh, here are some things that are wrong with banking or the financial system. It's a very fragile system. Fragile meaning it can break easily, can crack easily. Uh, and, and the point is not just fragile, too fragile. It's relative to what it could be or, or should be. Uh, and dangerous, dangerous meaning when it cracks, some damage happens, okay? Uh, and in this process, innocent public is put at risk, okay? This is a different kind of risk than, than the risk of an airplane crashing, but it's risk nonetheless that affects lots and lots of people. It's an economic kind of risk where, for example, uh, a manifestation of it happened in 2007 to 2009, but in fact I will argue that uh, the harm is sort of all the time because of the rest of what's wrong with it. Uh, and so there are unnecessary risks. So some risks we must bear. Earthquake risk, natural disaster, some other risks we can't control. Some of the risks here are controllable, avoidable, preventable, and so they are excessive when we are exposed to them because we don't have to. Um, and along with that, there are a lot of distortions and inefficiencies in the system that I will explain in a second. And these distortions and inefficiencies partly come from a governance problem. Governance problem is one where decisions are made by some and others are impacted and don't have control. That's a basic governance problem. Uh, this system is not a one where the markets work. This is a system that does not self-correct. There is a failure of resolving this in an efficient way on its own. Therefore, this system requires effective regulation. However, it's not effectively regulated right now. So there's something wrong with the regulation of this system uh, right now, and that's one of the things that's wrong with it, is that it's not regulated effectively in most countries. As a result of all of these, this system, which is part of the economy and an important part of the economy, does not serve the economy as well as it can. It does a few things. We all have our credit cards, maybe, but uh, the ATMs work, but uh, most of the time, in Cyprus, they didn't for a few weeks. Um, but it can work better, is sort of where all of these things that are wrong don't have to be as bad as, as they are. What makes this system so fragile? The key thing that I will end up focusing on is the fact that many players in this system use too much debt to fund what they do. And this is a part of it that is not often discussed, but the part that we're gonna shine the most bright light on. And that's the part that where you see fixing it involves 
you could call it a reshuffle of pieces of paper if you think of financial claims as such, and doesn't even harm, in fact, correct uh, how decisions are made in the economy and the risk involved. Not only do banks and other financial institutions borrow a lot, but they borrow in a particularly fragile way because the money that they owe depositors and other creditors is such that the creditors can come any time or are owed money the next day after board. And so when you fund in this particular way and you rely so much on such debt to fund, you always need your creditors to kind of stay around or not all come at the same time or all of that, or you run into a problem that you invested the money in something that you can't convert into cash right away. That's called the liquidity problem. That's like forgetting to take money out of your ATM if you have. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, it crosses the line into, into more serious problems about your ability to pay so-called solvency problems. In addition to having entities that borrow a lot and borrow in a way that they are prone to running into trouble, satisfying their commitments to their creditors, uh, there are a lot of time borrowing from one another in an interconnected system, which gives rise to a variety of contagion mechanisms such that if one runs into trouble, the system can experience a much bigger effect that in, indeed, because it serves a function in the economy, can harm the rest of the economy and sort of spill over to the rest of the economy. So it's a system that is very fragile, and yet it has the potential to cause harm because of this fragility. Another thing that's difficult about this and makes it fragile is the fact that there is a sense in which we don't quite see everything in this system. It's opaque. So there's a lot of... Uh, risks that appear to be there that oftentimes when we discovered them we didn't realize they were there or somehow they managed to be hidden from, from sight such as in markets that we don't observe over the counter derivative markets other markets that are not there or they're not reported in financial statements so we don't see quite all the different commitments that were made and all the different exposures that are there and um, so, so there's sort of another system around it that we, we feel like we don't really have control over. This system has the following inefficiencies and distortions. First of all, a lot is being discussed about too big or too something to, to fail. These are institutions, individual institutions, that are, tend to be enormous and complex and global, and where the problem is that should they run into trouble, then we have very stark choices, and oftentimes we choose to avoid their not paying their debts, basically, uh, over the alternative, which is to help them pay their debts, bail them out. And that creates a huge distortion, because by the time you uh, can get people to lend you, um, believing that they will get paid, then you don't have to, uh, they don't care much what you do, because they only care to be paid. Um, importantly, and often not noticed, because in fact the debate is always turned by the bankers into a threat that they will stop lending uh, or that they're not lending, uh, the lending that supposedly benefits the economy, that can benefit the economy, particularly lending to small businesses, is distorted. Sometimes there's too much, sometimes there's too little, and Part of that will also come down to 
unmade loans that should be made versus loans that maybe too much of them are made. All of that is just booms and busts and, and a situation in which we don't have so consistent lending, consistent good lending, because the banks are supposed to take money and channel it to productive investments that ideally you know, might be funded otherwise, but the banks can have a role in a particular part of the, of the funding uh, universe to fund small businesses, for example, that, uh, that don't have access to other investors. Um, so in all of this, who makes the decisions? Where is the governance problem? Well, there are lots of players here. This is not your standard governance problem. The people who make the decision are those who work for the banks. And the people impacted are many. Many whose money is being invested, who are affected in other way by the various decisions made in the banks, both about what to invest in and how to fund those investors going forward. And they include the shareholders, of course, those who gave the money, who are hoping for profits and would have to suffer whatever losses uh, are there. Uh, the creditors uh, might or might not be affected. If they're insured, they might not. If they're not, they might, uh, especially if they are not secured. But many of them find ways to ensure themselves that they will be paid by uh, securing some collateral that they can walk off with or other ways. Uh, so sometimes they're kind of out of this. They don't care. They are all okay. Uh, or they think they'll run and get their money out in time. Uh, and then there is uh, so the rest of society that is impacted by those decisions and that the only control society taxpayers have is through regulators and the politicians that impact them. So the governance problems goes throughout. What to do about the fact that the system is as it is? Well, it's been debated, certainly in the last few years, what to do, and we have commissions and committees and proposals all over the place. Uh, one direction is to deal with the ability of these institutions to fail without needing bailouts or without harming or any of that. So that falls under some improvement over the sort of legal, the way in which other companies fail, which is usually the bankruptcy, the solvency laws, bankruptcy codes in different countries. But of course, we're talking now about banks and financial institutions that are global that have to deal with different regimes uh, of bankruptcy across border, where in the case of Lehman, you saw that money was in New York and not in London, and uh, these are complicated uh, issues. So there's now, in some countries, including the US and UK, uh, improved uh, resolution laws that allow, for example, the FDIC or the Bank of England to, to, to take over this process, but they still have to coordinate amongst themselves, and then there are dozens of other countries involved who are not yet in this process. I am involved with the FDIC's effort uh, on this, and the FDIC is the best that we have for this purpose, but there are significant issues there, and uh, on this committee is Paul Volcker, who once presented with how they would have resolved Lehman Brothers so much better than the bankruptcy court, uh, seemed to be not paying attention until he asked, and what are you going to do in the next day and then the day after that, after you figure that out uh, overnight? So in other words, hinting at the situation of uh, many banks failing and taking each other down and how you're going to deal with that in a, in a crisis and whether you're not going to be following the urge that regulators often have to just step in and take care of it through guarantees and other measures or governments fearing worse. The point for me 
is that whenever this thing, if it ever gets triggered in real life, in our reality, it's too late for me. The damage is already there. And the damage of both what led to it and what follows is real for the rest of the economy. In the best of all worlds, this is going to be an unpleasant, disruptive, and costly process. No matter who pays for it, the collateral damage is going to be there. And uh, because the trigger is going to be imminent default, which is very late in the game, it's not even an insolvency trigger, certainly not a distress trigger, uh, when the banks stop lending and get run into all kinds of problems. Uh, the other set of proposals have to do with structuring what the activities are or separating them or breaking up or ring fencing or all of those classes of Volcker rule, sort of deciding what they can do and can't do. And here, the challenge is that the too systemic to fail, the notion that somebody is going to impact the system or have collateral damage when they fail, is not doesn't come with a category of deposit taking. It could be an investment bank like Lehman Brothers. It could be an insurance company like AIG. It could be a hedge fund like LTCM. It's not clear exactly why if you split up and you say I'm not going to bail this set of institutions out, that that is a good solution because should they fail, they might actually harm. So you want to worry about that. Um, and you could have too many banks to fail. So they can be small and interconnected and highly indebted, and they will all fail at the same time. That's just as bad, because the entire system, again, is failing. So here is the approach that we will take, that we will propose, which has to do with prevention. Prevention of the fail part. Prevention even of, of, of getting to distress. The idea of catching it before you get to that and keeping the system safe and sound. Financial crises are not natural disasters. They, some people would like you to believe that. Stuff happens, a crisis happens every five to seven years from nature. That's a narrative that some people prefer to have. It's false. Because that's not what it is. I'm not saying you can prevent all of them and that stuff doesn't happen, but there's a lot you can do. Uh, the fragility of the banking, the level of fragility, is way higher than it needs to be significantly higher, and the accepting it is completely not essential for us. We do not need to accept this just because it's there. It's not there for a good reason. We will not have to sacrifice anything. The big trade-offs that we're presented with are false trade-offs. We can actually have it all if we steer our way to transition to a system and keep a safer system, much safer than uh, the system that we have and much healthier. So how? Let me just show you a critical concept here because some of the bankers' new closer con confusions have to do with the misunderstanding of the basic structure of so-called balance sheet. Now, balance sheet is an accounting term, but of course in finance we view it just as a way to represent the two distinct things that go on in a financial system. There are investments that are made on one side. In the case of a bank, some of it could be in cash reserves, some of it is in lent to in mortgages, some of it is invested in derivatives, whatever is done to invest the money on the left-hand side. And balanced with it are the, call them pieces of paper, the financial claims, the way in which the banks get money to do these investors, investments. What are the ways? Well, for banks, it includes deposits. People give them money, they owe the money back. 
in the form of deposits. They also provide ATMs for that, the biggest invention in banking, according to Volcker. Uh, and I agree, the biggest innovation, you know, add Internet banking to it, and you know, you've got kind of the things we can say for sure were beneficial. The rest is a little less clear. Um, and the rest of the funding comes from all kinds of debts, promises to pay later. It's a way to fund. Companies can fund this way and don't have to if they are corporations. And then up there uh, is what's called equity. It's just assets minus liabilities. Call it. It's the residual. It's the whatever, whoever puts the number on this, and you can have different kinds of conceptual or accounting type of balance sheets. It is basically the funding that is obtained not through borrowing. It's the if owner's money or shareholder's money or net worth or whatever you want to call it, we explain in the book. Okay, in the, we start with the mortgage. It's the down payment that you put in to buy the house to which you add mortgage. That's the debt. And then you invest in a house. So that's the case of a house in the balance sheet. The key thing about debt, it is a senior thing usually. At least there's different seniorities within it, but it's a promise, a legal promise to pay. Stuff happens when you don't, and uh, it gets paid before any profits, uh, before other things. So it has seniority relative to the profits that are shared by the owners or by the shareholders. Okay? So that's important about debt. What we're talking about is substituting, as one example, some of the debt with equity, or there are other ways to do this. Uh, but here is a critical banker's new clause, first of all. What you hear in the language is that banks set aside capital because they have used, chose the word capital, which is used many ways in economics to define assets and machines and other things, to signify a part of the funding that's usually called equity in other firms. Now there's regulatory capital and other things that they allow, but fundamentally capital is meant to absorb losses, but not as a reserve, cash sitting idle but as unborrowed source of funding. So that's what it is about. So the notion that the banks hold or set aside capital is completely misleading and wrong. Of course, they like that image that they're holding to that money because that makes people accept the claim that they can't lend this money, whereas, in fact, the money that we put in the house in down payment is invested in the house. It's not a rainy day fund. So the notion that you would hear in the press and in reports that you should think of a rainy day fund on capital, that's just false. That's just nonsense, basically. This doesn't start the debate in the right place. It, does, it confuses the words that are used. This is how bad it gets. So you've got to clear that right away. What are we talking about? Not about some pile of cash sitting and not doing anything, but about funding without borrowing. That's all. The confusion suggests all kinds of trade-offs that are not there when we actually talk about it equity funding. So what, here's what we're talking about, a little bit of equity and more equity. Now watch it carefully. Oh, shoot. Here. See my little Pac-Man? Uh, so that's what happens when they lose. When they lose, the point is it's not, the, the debt is still there. Creditors were the last to lose. Equity has to absorb the losses. That's the beauty of it. It wasn't promised an amount. It gets the profits, but it also suffers the losses. That's the nature of equity. So 
when it has little equity left, then people start worrying about this, comp- this bank. And oops, should there be another loss, now this bank can be insolvent, meaning there can be a miracle and it would pay, but basically it doesn't have the ability to pay by some measure that's actually a little tricky concept, but we explained it in the book. If the bank is distressed, then it starts dysfunctioning. It starts doing crazy things or not investing or all kinds of things happen, or it fails. It might fail. It might plot along for a while and people, you know, it wouldn't, you won't see a balance sheet looking like that. If it's an accounting balance sheet, they'll find a way to balance it even with negative equity, but uh, it'll just, until it defaults, it sort of would stay there. Uh, but our well-capitalized bank that has a lot more equity absorbed these losses and can continue functioning. Very simple. Anybody who borrows can see that if they borrow too much, they're more likely to get into trouble. Very simple. You could bail out the bank, but the collateral damage would you likely remain. So you go through this experience. Okay? Now, the truth is that uh, over the years, the amount of equity funding of banks has declined consistently. So back in the 19th century, banks were partnerships, private partnerships. Of course, they had risk locally, and they couldn't do some of the things they're doing today, and they didn't have central banks. All sorts of things were different. But what was very different too, was that they had to have a lot of absorption ability because depositors wanted that. The depositors would not trust the bank unless the owners had about 50% equity and unlimited liability. In other words, if the bank couldn't pay them, the owners of the bank had to pay out of their own assets. Going into the 20th century, we're still seeing equity fund about 20, 30% of the assets. And over the years, and if you ask why, there is some connection between more and more and more safety nets for banks that help them pay their debts and their desire and ability to borrow more and more and more and thus become more heavily indebted. So when they tell you these are unreal and unimaginable levels of equity, the ones that I will recommend, the answer is going to be that in the rest of the economy, we never see companies that are funded with very little equity on a regular basis. The banks themselves would not lend to such companies. However, they think that it's okay and that it's terrible otherwise if they are allowed to use only to have fund 95% of their investments by borrowing. So uh, banks have less than 10%, but that's, ex- that's just unheard of in the rest of the economy, unless you're a failing corporation on the way down, but not, not maintained this way. And this is without any regulation. We don't regulate companies how much to borrow, and yet they don't. So when they tell you that equity is very expensive and all these things, then you ask yourself, isn't the equity traded and valued and held by the same people for all companies, banks and otherwise? It's traded in the stock exchange. How is it any different? People put it in their pension funds or whatever. Does it look any different? Are we talking about a different kind of thing? No. It's in the same market and held by the same investors who think about these things in the same way for banks and for other companies. They live in the same markets that everybody else. So they're special, but they're not special in terms of the equity investors that they look at. Um, Basel III, which the banks will tell you is very tough, only requires, it's an innovation that it even requires this, 3% equity to total assets. It has some other numbers that float around. We'll talk about them later if we have a chance. 
So uh, what we're going to recommend is just to change the funding mix of the bank dramatically. I'm not touching what they do. I'm just touching how they fund. And we're, we are aiming at levels, certainly with another digit to them, than the numbers we're talking about now. Levels that historically and in the context of other firms are just standard. Nothing crazy about them except the banks don't want to fund, fund, be funded that way. It's more fun for them to fund with debt than with equity. Uh, but that's not for any good reason. That's just because it works for them and they hate to transition to a better system. Anything you can think about is good. There's not one thing from society's perspective that's bad about it. Uh, so you'll hear a lot of things, and that's sort of the banker's new clothes, about why it's an awful thing and terrible things will happen, but there's absolutely no reason that this is true. You will reduce the likelihood of distress, you will reduce the contagion effect because there will be less concerns about solvency and there will be other contagion mechanisms through asset sales and, and fire sales and other things that would be muted. Uh, the too-big-to-fail subsidies will be reduced because the subsidies are delivered through cheap borrowing that we will just prevent them from using as much of and send them back to the equity market where it's a little more expensive for them, but therefore we save on the subsidies. And the collateral damage, the downside risk is shifted back with the upside. And there's fewer liquidity problems because a lot of liquidity problems come because of solvency concerns. Runs don't usually happen in a vacuum. And uh, therefore they're able to maintain lending in a downturn. And we're not interfering with anything they do. As I'll show you, we can transition without interfering with anything that's there already by just adding equity. So uh, this is a great bargain. Basel, as I said, is 3% of total. And then from Basel 2 to 3, uh, we tripled, they would tell you, tripled from 2% to 7, which can go down to 4.5. But that's not of the total that's invested. That's of something called risk-weighted assets. These risk-weighted assets, I'll show you in a little bit, uh, did not count Greek debt for Cyprus banks. And yet, it wasn't as safe as the regulation thought. It was. So uh, the analysis behind this is flawed. There's a lot of politics behind this, uh, these numbers, and they do not reflect uh, a, an appropriate analysis of the issues. Martin Wolf had a great line on this back in 2010. They tell you that it's terribly tripled, but if you triple a very small number, you don't get a very large number. So the relevant comparison is not the ridiculous levels of before, but where we should go and where we could go and where, we, where, where we'd be better off going. That's the appropriate measure. It's not how much better off we are relative to some past that didn't work out very well, but, um, but relative to where we might wish to go for a better system. Uh, what we recommend, and again, we do not have science, and oftentimes they'll say, well, where's your model? Where's your estimate? And all of that. You know, when a truck is driving at 100 miles an hour, you don't need a model to tell you that it should be 55.7 or 58.6. You know 100 miles an hour is not safe to drive. So I know what to do from the levels of 3 5%. I know what to do, and I will tell you what to do in a way that would get it better, unambiguously. And so where to stop, there's plenty of time to, to build this up to a better system. There are zombie banks to recognize. There are banks to strengthen. 
there's enough work to be done. By the time you get to the levels that I'm talking about, which are in the area of 20 to 30 percent, but again, it depends on the accounting and it depends on other things. So it's just rough numbers just to mean to say a lot more than three. Uh, it doesn't even matter that much at that point because the benefits and costs are just, we're already at a safe range and we just want to keep it at a safe range and allow it to absorb losses and just maintain it there. So we go through that in the book. Um, and how do you, the best thing to do immediately is to prevent the depletion of this equity through, for example, dividend payments and other share buybacks and other things. This is a profit that was made. The dollar of equity is there. Retained earnings are the best and most easily accessible source of funding for companies in the pecking order of funding. For most companies, that's the story. First of all, you fund from your own profits. Warren Buffett, owner of, uh, manager of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, never pays dividend at all. He wants his investors to trust him to invest the money over and over again and reinvest. If they want cash, they sell a little bit of stock for the publicly held funds. It's a homemade dividend for those of you who took corporate finance. So there's no problem building up the total amount of equity. We're not talking about the stock price of the banks. That's not an objective of regulation that they have a high stock price if the price is based on subsidies. It should be the right price for what they've got. And if the banks cannot raise equity, because this is my ultimate stress test for the banks, can you attract investors from where you are right now to bear the downside and the upside and look at you with your risks and everything? without accounting numbers hiding your losses and all of that, can you get a pound for a share? If you can, if a bank can, then raising that money, even if it dilutes the current shareholders, is a worthwhile cause because maybe the, the way it is right now puts too much of the risk on other people and most of the shareholders anyway are diversified. When I hold shares in the banks, I hold shares in other companies if you remember from your finance courses, you hold diversified market portfolio, something like that. The market portfolios of all of us lost a lot from banks being fragile. So whatever makes the banks uh, benefit from something, it's all of us that are giving that benefit and suffering the polluting effect from that. So that's a very good cause to straighten this out and kind of recycle this, this, uh, this stuff. A bank that cannot raise equity at all is sending a flag about itself. Something must be wrong, might be wrong with this bank. So we should look at that. We want to know that now. Because even with the raising of equity, uh, they are still subsidized, some of the biggest ones. So unless they raise a lot, the subsidies remain. And they would raise equity at the prices that impound these subsidies. So what I'm talking about is around 20 to 30%. Let me have a, a visual here to uh, tell you kind of what's going on. We love banks to make loans. These are the investments that benefit the economy. The rest, any hedge fund can make uh, as well. So they're, they're, somebody can make them the derivative uh, trades or they could intermediate them. But say we want that. They need money to, to make the loans. How can they get money? They can get money through equity or through debt. Okay, so that putting the deposits in there because that helps us. Okay, so put that there. Now, as they fund with debt, they create systemic risk. So I have a river of the economy which they pollute by 
funding more and more with debt beyond a certain point anyway. What's the situation that we have? We, some in a crazy way, like a tax kick to debt over equity that gives them a tax exemption to the interest they pay, which biases for everybody, corporation, uh, funding towards debt instead of equity, uh, a crazy tax code uh, that subsidizes something harmful on, on the margin. Uh, but especially through, for many of the banks, or for the banking system as a whole, through the fact that everybody believes, rightly, uh, that creditors will be paid, not necessarily in all situations, but there are enough situations that they will be paid, and therefore uh, creditors will give the money under better terms, then, they, then overall funding costs would be if they raise more equity. How do they respond to the fact that debt is cheaper for them or funding with more debt is cheaper for them? Well, a lot of debt and a little bit of equity uh, and a lot more systemic risk. So this is what a system does that encourages pollution, essentially. So you have to imagine a producer of dyes that can produce the dyes in a polluting process and a clean process, and we subsidize the polluting process and they sure enough pollute. So or we encourage speed driving. So they respond. The point is to counter that. After this, maybe the stock price is right, maybe we pass on subsidies, do they pass them on to the rest of the economy? The way we give the subsidies, we don't tell them what to do. They'll threaten that they won't lend, but they'll lend if they want to lend. And when you go to their heads about whether they lend or not, you will see uh, from various things that I, you know, I don't have time to go over, but the book explains, lending to businesses is just not as much fun as, as other things. And even the flood regulation discourages it relative to other investments that are a little better for the banker themselves, for, for the equity. It's just not as much fun to do. So uh, the blanket guarantees that we give to all the funding and in the hope that they will make good loans doesn't work for us. It gets them to be more dangerous. It doesn't necessarily get them to make loans. They'll make them if they want to make them. And there's no problem with money, by the way, to make loans. Um, J.P. Morgan played in London Whale with deposit money. They don't even lend the deposits that they have. So they lend $700 billion, but they have trillions of dollars in total and only a little bit of equity. So from the banker's perspective, there is lots of forces that suggest to fund every way possible with debt. However, none of the reasons that make debt attractive to banks represents a cost to society if they don't follow that. In other words, the reason that it's attractive for them is because they can pass on some of their costs to other people. For society, it's completely reversed. From a situation in which they do whatever they do, extra funding or even additional funding should best come from equity. However, they will not choose to do it. That's why it requires regulation. From society's perspective, you get all the benefits and none of the reasons that they choose, which includes a fixation in returns, unadjusted for us, and all kinds of things like that, uh, are not valid reasons to avoid demanding that they use more equity. Here are the analogies. I already alluded to them. We explain in the book how once you start borrowing, and unless your creditors scream, you become biased towards more borrowing. So borrowing has a certain ad addictive properties. So you would have a ratchet effect of you want to borrow more and you don't want to take the risk from the existing creditors already there at your own expense. Banks are always in this situation. 
By giving them safety net, we feed this addiction to boring. They just keep wanting to do it from where they are. We need to push them back. Uh, so we need to push back on that. Otherwise, they could, you, they could be thought of as speeding trucks, and we're talking about speed limits as opposed to putting ambulances by the roadside and corners to catch them. Um, we have a lot of bad policies, including saying that never is now is not the right time to do anything because it's never the right time, actually. And we say time has a trick of getting rotten before it gets ripe. So it's never ripe. And we view all problems in banking, which is the story they want to tell you as plumbing problems, just liquidity problems. And that's a flawed narrative and a flawed interpretation of the problems because liquidity problems are not that difficult to solve if the banks are strong. Basel approach uh, it relies on a fine-tuning that's an illusion that's not worked, that's actually been harmful and has a lot of bad intended, unintended consequences uh, and just fails. Uh, and also allows alternatives to equity to count as if they were equity because the banks hate equity so much that they could go for other things. And all of that is flawed. Uh, for reasons I don't have time to explain now, but I'll explain in the book. So where is the bank's attitude is anything but equity because they just want that equity to be as small as possible for compensation and other reasons. We recommend only equity as the only reliable uh, ability, the source of loss absorption for banks, where you don't have to worry about who it is that holds this thing because they're not, they were not promised anything, and you don't have to worry about whether they themselves are weakened by absorbing losses or any of that. Greece couldn't default because the banks would get weaker, that kind of thing. Um, and all of those non-equity things create still overhangs and distortions in investment decisions and a lack of desirability. So here is Cyprus for you. Here is a well-capitalized Cyprus bank satisfying Basel. What is it going to do? It's going to put itself on top of, oh, it, see, it got an, in, <laughs> I got, I got, this is an intermediate file that I had. It has all these Greek debt that counts as if it's just as good as cash and therefore doesn't change their Requirements. Of course, what happens then is Greece defaults and 75% losses on these investments. While it worked, the Cyprus banks promised 4 or 5%, which is you can't really get that without taking risk. And sure enough, they went to get a great spread while it lasted by investing in Greek debt that the regulation viewed as perfectly safe, never asking why it's paying 15 or 20%, which usually goes along with very risky debt. So sure enough, the 15, 20% did not last forever. And uh, usually in finance we call these spreads uh, that never turn down arbitrage opportunities, money machines, which we tell our students don't exist. But banks seem to think that uh, they're entitled to such money machines. <clears throat> and if they don't work out, then it's going to be somebody else's problem. They give you excuses. If we regulate, then activities will move to unregulated markets. This is like saying that the robbers go to the dark alley and therefore we can't outlaw robbery. The shadow banking system exists because previous regulations failed to be enforced properly. And that's why the system got created that's completely attached for the most part to the regulated banks. Otherwise it's not been as risky actually. The hedge funds themselves were not as risky until they get to be very systemic, the, the ones that failed didn't impact us and didn't even have as much indebtedness because they couldn't. The ones that got particularly dangerous were the ones that the banks themselves guaranteed. And that goes back to 
how that loss comes to uh, hit all of us uh, in the end or to weaken the banks. Then they tell you that we must maintain the competitiveness of our banks because they are our national champions. The city of London must be not regulated more heavily than others, and Barnier goes to U.S. to yell at our regulators for trying to, uh, to contain uh, the, even the foreign banks that work in the U.S., trying to protect the U.S. tax citizens, uh, taxpayers from uh, Deutsche Bank uh, becoming a risky on U.S. soil. Um, of course, in this country, you saw what happened when Icelandic banks came to your country and harmed uh, your depositors and walked away. Your government had to go to court now to try to collect uh, the money. And so um, you unfortunately have Mr. Barnier to deal with. Uh, and that's, that's not good the way uh, Brussels views uh, the regulation. But that's a whole other story. The point is the following. Level playing field argument, the argument that we can't regulate because the other person is not regulating, that's like, right, like your kids saying, you know, the other parents are allowing you know, them to stay up late or whatever. Uh, just a parenting analogy often uh, helps. Um, is, is a flawed argument, is a protectionist argument, is an argument. This is not the Olympics here about winning medals. When an industry competes abroad successfully, it might harm the citizens back home. It might compete unfairly with the other industries back home. So the success of the financial industry could actually harm if it comes at the, co at the cost of subsidies. Anybody can go out and succeed with a lot of subsidies and while risking endangering the population. This is what Irish, Icelandic, Cyprus citizens saw. You could have very successful banking industry and uh, you pay dearly for that success as citizens. So this argument is completely flawed and each country should make sure that its citizens are not harmed by an unsafe system. We don't have level playing field in other safety regulations on cars or, or other things that harm and or speed limits that have to be fair or whatever. Of course there's not the interconnectedness and all of that but you still have to uh, remember what you're trying to do. Here is the rallying, the lobbying cry. A classic statement comes from Ackerman, and you'll hear them all the, all the time. More equity, now he's already talking about equity. That's a good step. He's not saying capital set aside. Might increase the stability of bankies, admitting might. At the same time, it would restrict their ability to provide loans to the rest of the economy, which reduces growth and has negative effects for all. This is the words came out of his mouth. Here's a corrected statement. Well-designed capital regulation that requires much more equity will increase the stability of banks. At the same time, it would enhance, enable banks to make good loans. Not every loan is a good loan. Banks lending too much to Greece may not be a good investment or to subprime borrowers. Uh, good appropriate loans to the rest of the economy at the appropriate prices and remove significant distortions from the economy. This may reduce the growth of banks, the industry, or individual banks. Uh, however, it will have a positive effect for all, except possibly for bankers. Bottom line is this system works for very few people and harms and costs many, many others. And somehow or other, we got confused or bullied or something into believing or accepting that this is the best system that we need to have, and that's wrong.
So we wrote this book to explain the issues slowly to just about anybody who's willing to take the book and read because it's completely non-technical. And um, I had a conversation with Arthur Levitt, uh, uh, ex-Security uh, um, and Exchange Commission head uh, last week, and he said, you wrote a book so that my Aunt Edna can understand. <laughs> so uh, why did you write a book that my Aunt Edna can understand? It's because I've encountered too many, too many people who I didn't know what they knew and what they wanted to know, and I just didn't want to worry about that. So I might as well explain everything from the beginning, and not even for those who think it's for dummies, they can skip some things. And when we refer back to them, because they actually shouldn't have skipped them, they'll have to go back and see about the dark side of borrowing that applies to every heavy borrower, even banks, and the things that are the same and the things that are different about banks and just how special they are. Uh, and part of the problem is political, which I didn't get time to talk about, but part of the puzzle is the politics of banking, which is very very um, daunting in different countries, different ways, but in the U.S. in 2009, a senator blurted to a reporter that uh, this is 2009, right after the financial crisis, frankly, Wall Street owns the place. This is what he said, Senator Durbin, just like that, owns the place. Um, <clears throat> so in the election in the U.S., you didn't hear anything about it. Everything seems fine with the Dodd-Frank. It's working. Dodd-Frank in the U.S. gave regulators a lot of authority, that much of which they had before, but these are the same regulators that failed and continue to fail. Uh, and so the failure is regulatory, and the failure is of the politicians that often push the regulators to listen to the banks. Um, in Europe, politics has banks and governments intertwined in such, an, such a symbiosis that they all fail at the same time. So different countries have different politics, but many countries have very difficult politics for banking. Why? The risks are very abstract, unlike planes falling from the sky. Uh, and there's always a story you can tell and no accountability for the people involved. And I'm finishing, Charles. Uh, <laughs> and as the robber said when asked why he robbed the bank, Banks are where the money is, and the politicians always have ideas for what they should do with it. Therefore, safety of banks is somehow getting lost in the priorities of the people involved. So we wrote this book in part to inform the public that the system is really not working as well as it could, and it can be made to work better, but it seems to not want to do it, including all the people involved that are supposedly controlling it for the public interest. They're not doing their job, unfortunately. That's it. Right, and Nat is happy to take questions. Uh, if you want to ask a question, wait until the mic arrives with you and then give your name and affiliation very briefly. And the first question is, is up there, the guy in the light blue shirt. Thanks. Uh, my name is Ben Gautzen. At the moment, I work for JP Morgan. Hey. Um, my favorite I, bank. <laughs> Mine too. My favorite CEO. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering, I understand this principle that more capital is better. I just wonder whether you could comment why you then stop at 30%. Thanks. Well, um, 
some of my friends want to make me appear less crazy and say, you know, John Cochran says, until it doesn't matter, or 40 or 50% sound good to them. Uh, as I said, there, I basically take it as kind of a reasonable number because I think at some point it sort of doesn't matter that much. In other words, once you get to those ranges, pretty much, of course, you still have to control the risk a little bit or at least look at it. You have to look at market values as you manage it. So I have my model of the enlightened regulator. You know, we're not there yet. But uh, I, the truth of the matter is we do not have sort of mathematical models for these trade-offs. The models we have are not appropriate, and they are used by some both lobbyists and regulatory authorities to produce tables with numbers, but they are flawed somewhere along the way, either in the assumption that, whoa, sorry, <laughs> excited here, uh, either by the assumptions they make on the theoretical model or in the, <laughs> the empirical model that, that is used the data, whether it's relevant or not, and what the numbers mean when you have a table at the end of the paper. So when you look at what's done, it's not trustworthy to guide you uh, at all for all, any number of reasons that are often technical. Uh, so I, don't, I basically don't have, but as I said, when you stand at the, when you drive at 100 miles an hour, when you stand at the, at the edge of a canyon and somebody says to step back, you don't need a big theory about how many feet to step and how many inches to step back. You just know where to go, what direction to move in. So I know what to do, even though I'm not sure what the optimum is. So that's my answer. The man with the white hair like mine, with my <laughs> hand up there. I'd be interested in the speaker's views on the advent of peer-to-peer -peer lenders in the UK. We've seen several arrive over the last five years, including, I think, one of the largest, Zopa. No, we we can't hear. Can we you can't hear. Sorry. I'd be interested in the speaker's views on the advent of peer-to-peer -peer lenders oh, peer -peer. in the UK. Uh, we've seen the advent of Zopa in the recent years. Obviously, these are lending organizations with zero equity. In... What peer-to-peer what -peer lending shows you is partly that the banks don't feel like making certain loans, and whether they're good loans or not, it, there seems to be kind of a need. In, the New, in New York, I, I read a couple of years ago that you had micro-lenders come in to lend to restaurants because the banks were just busy elsewhere and didn't feel like it. It was too much work, not enough upside, apparently, for them on these boring business uh, lending. So... The, the point is, banking is supposed to make lending more efficient. And peer-to-peer, -peer, it's... No, well, I'm, what I'm saying is that it's a, it, it responds to banks not doing what they could do for their own reasons. But... Well, the... the, the, the but these, these are cases where it's unilateral lending. Uh, so one person... <coughs> No, no, no. Well, retail banks take deposit money and lend. Uh, but this is an individual person taking it. So the individual person would, would put their own money and they could lose it. So it's basically all equity lending. So, 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 right. So in that sense, it can absorb losses on lending. But what I am talking about is the efficiency of you and I checking the credit worthiness of a borrower and whether there is a more efficient way to lend in principle that banks could could develop a skill that I don't want to go into the business of, of, of banking. In other words, it's, it's a good thing to do, 
But the question is, is this the most efficient way to have lending done in the economy? That's the question. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, my attitude is let a thousand flowers bloom so that I don't have any problem with, with this happening. If people want to do it and it doesn't harm others, I don't see a problem with it. So maybe Barclay. End of free banking. Loans are going to be in the forty or fifty percent. Have you done any research on that side of your? Well. I believe that uh, lending, uh, uh, when you have competition to lend, the spreads for lending are uh, determined in the marketplace by the interest rates in the market and by the risk of the loan itself. That's the way it should be, like for other investments. In other words, I view lending as an investment like other investments. It should be made at the appropriate costs uh, and, 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 and depending on its benefits uh, to, to the positive net present value. Uh, and all of that. Funding usually, the way it's funded is supposed to have a marginal effect on it uh, unless you have subsidies and, and other things. Now, the return on equity on any bank uh, is affected by all kinds of things in a realization way. Uh, I would not be the one to tell you that Barclays is, is, is an efficient uh, corporation. Uh, we know that it's got lots of issues, right, and legacy issues and other things. So what actually happens in Barclays reflects LIBOR and who knows what else that's there. So you, we just don't know what is sort of the steady state uh, return on, on Barclays and whether they're doing good things or not or they're just living off subsidies. We don't know. We must move on. Yeah. Next is Tom Wertes. Tom Wertes, Ernst & Young. Um, the, at the start of the lecture, you said banks may not be the only uh, uh, people uh, wearing new clothes. Uh, could you put the, the bank, this in perspective for, uh, for perhaps two other aspects of the U.S. financial scene? Uh, an industry that uh, claims it has 100% equity, namely money market mutual funds uh, that make promises not to break the buck, uh, and Fannie and Freddie, uh, which uh, are fully guaranteed by the U.S. government. Which, which way do you oh, think the bank... The, the money market funds are uh, part of the, that shadow banking system that developed uh, in a way to evade regulation way back when we didn't allow interest payments on deposits. And uh, the money market funds, if they're part of the payment system, are actual banks, but they refuse to be regulated as banks, and it's a failure of the regulators to not uh, recognize uh, the risk of money market funds, which is just another layer of interconnectedness in the system and highly destabilizing. So definitely they are lobbying at, for their own interests and getting away with uh, with with. with very poor regulation, and it's basically outrageous. Fannie and Freddie, they live entirely on subsidies. These are very highly corrupted. Now, if you ask me about bankers and clothes, there are many audiences, not just many institutions, that say flawed things. So I have a, a lot of enemies. Uh, good evening. I'm Dr. Sora Bagarwal. I'm Vice Chairman, Indian Institute of Finance. My question is, you just said that uh, the banking people believe in Modiglani-Miller theory with taxes, whereby you can continue to increase the value with increase in, tax, uh, in debt. 
And then a lot of academicians questioned that uh, Nobel Prize winning theory, and they said, no, it's a bankruptcy cost. Mm -hmm. Now, how does your book really put the same thing in a new, new picture? You know, because, because most of the uh, thing you've talked about is almost the same, and yet, you know, we knew all that, and all that was taught to graduates from Harvard and Stanford and, you know, from the top mm -hmm. business schools, and yet we had the financial crisis. And, and more, you know, you've, you've written what's wrong with banking. And I, I've written a paper whereby I've questioned, is it financial innovation or financial engineering really to be questioned? Or is it the, really the greed with which these bankers uh, created mortgage and now they're talking about reverse mortgage? That is the real reason for crisis. So what's wrong with bankers rather than banking? Right. Is, 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 is something, you know, I, I like to understand. Banking <laughs> includes bankers. Uh, it includes bankers and regulators and the whole system. Uh, well, we put Modigliani and Miller's result, much ben you know, maligned uh, and highly critically important, but uh, but not quite what our key focus is on, in context in the book. This result, as sometimes they like to present it as an irrelevancy result, does not apply to anybody. And the key issue is how does the funding mix affect funding costs privately, and how does the funding mix affect? Society. If the funding mix becomes cheaper in light of because of subsidies, and removing those subsidies saves us on the subsidies. So therefore, it's not a relevant cost for a regulatory purpose. And if, it, in addition, there's collateral damage, then and banks don't bear their own bankruptcy because somebody else does. Then for them, the trade-offs are not there, and there. But for society, they do exist, and the distortions uh, are still there, but not always seen. So we put all that in in, in context. Yes, we know Modigliani and Miller. Bankers have convinced everybody, that just because they can say that it doesn't apply to them just for their own reasons, whereas it doesn't apply to anybody, that for that reason we have to suspend all judgment as if I deny gravity because it's friction, just that. And therefore I can ignore gravity. Thank you. Um, my name is Henry Davis. I'm a management consultant and for Decisions and Strategies International. I want to talk about compensation, particularly pensions of CEOs. A lot of people make the argument for pensions with big amount of stocks to make CEOs think more long term. Mm -hmm. But before the crash, two of the biggest uh, stock denominated pension funds were for t CEOs of two companies, and these were Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. Is fixed income a better alternative to stock or cash weighted? excessive pensions to make CEOs think long-term about their strategies and be more responsible? I believe that uh, in general, so bank, bank equity is one thing, but there's other equities that there is uh, room for investing in productive companies. I come from Silicon Valley where there's a lot of investment and a lot of innovation funded with equity, venture capitalists, and even when it its bubble bursts, it doesn't take the economy down um, because there's not as much debt and interconnectedness uh, through the rest of the global system. The pension funds, uh, I actually spend some of my time in London and my effort now will be on, uh, among other things, on, on governance because in terms of uh, the, the governance of the banks, the question is who are they, who, who are they responding to, who controls them 
is the board controlling them, our shareholders, and who is the shareholder. So banks, for banks, it's particularly important the distinction, various distinctions of stakeholders, in particular also the distinction between diversified and non-diversified shareholders. So, so the banks may respond to somebody who, who owns all their wealth in banks, but their diversified shareholders are all of us, and they're not responding to our needs. Who is going to represent the diversified investors? Well, I'm trying to tell pension funds and other institutional investors that it's their job to voice concern about the fact that our broad portfolios have lost dramatically in the crisis because the banks have harmed the rest of the economy. And so somehow uh, there's a sort of a gaps in, 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 in in the controls of these banks, and you know, obviously, in also in incentive compensation and all of that, both within the banks and even within the institutional investors. So there's a lot of governance issues throughout the system. Uh, it's a big topic. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Stephen Tang. I'm an LSE alumni. Um, I was always very surprised that no banker went to jail over the banking crisis that happened in 2008. Do you think there are certain aspects or behaviors in the banking industry that should be outlawed? Well, we have laws in general. We have, anti we have fraud laws about fraud, presumably, and uh, they have a standard of proof or whatever. So many people have the instinct, and I share the instinct, and something is not right with the fact that we seem to have a lot of misconduct, and yet there seem to be no consequences. In the U.S. recently, the fact that the Attorney General said that uh, he worries about the impact on the economy of prosecuting certain banks sent shockwaves through uh, the system, because if there's one thing that all politicians from all sides in the, of the aisle in the U.S as hate is being above the law. This is some, the kind of a line that they don't like. And so all of a sudden something's wrong, which was good for a generating debate, which didn't exist before, and more pushing of the, of the people involved to admit that there's a problem and to, think, to be challenged about doing something about it. In terms of going to jail, it's been, or being prosecuted, there's been a lot of talk about that and a lot of questions asked about why, why the SEC is not going and we end the book with an incident in which they actually did go after somebody, but it's been very hard for them to, to prove it. Whether that's right or not, none of us can really judge all the legal issues about it. There's often time in these contracts small prints that they could use to defend themselves, and so the courts have not been that, that helpful to, to these prosecutions. So I don't know enough to judge, but something definitely seems not right with the fact that there's no consequences. I totally share the sentiment. Um, and I wish there was more consequences. David Badham, erstwhile RBS, which may be another of your favorite banks, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Um, the analogy I can't quite get out of my head, and perhaps you told some stories, so help a little with, is you know, greed is, it's not just a banker's trait, it's sort of a risk for all humanity, yes. which yes. is, yes. And, and I can't help but have a, a sort of analogy in my mind that the 20 to 30% equity as a percentage of total assets is a little bit like fitting a sort of a, a gastric band to the morbidly clinically obese. And so a sense that it fits, you know, you talk about prevention rather than cure, I'm not sure that of itself it addresses the appetite 
as opposed to the consequences of having the appetite? Yeah, so uh, the, one, the, the caveat that we make is related to what, what you said, which is we're still concerned about governance, but when they, about the risk appetite throughout the system. And when we talk about the risk appetite, I also share your view that, uh, that it's, it's, it's throughout the system. In other words, it includes, in other words, the cutting of corner or the hoping for the best when you take risk is, is, not, just, is not just the bankers. It's the people who they sell the securities to and, and the, the, the managers of these other funds that want to squeeze some returns as well. So everybody is in this world where you just cut the corner just a little bit and hope the risks work out. When people say that if they had more equity, it's, it's as if, if you said, you know, I'll wear seatbelts and I'll drive faster or something like that, which is an effect uh, that they claim. What I say is the following, uh, a few things. First of all, if you are saying that banks will take more risk because they have all this uh, equity and they don't have to worry about anything, uh, I then say by, do, by saying so, you're admitting or, you know, acknowledging that there is a serious governance problem in terms of risk controls uh, of the banks. In other words, if they were to take more risk, on whose behalf would they be doing that? Why would they do that? Why are they going to do anything differently now that they're funded differently than they would do before? Then you get into their compensation. If it's about ROE, that's just a flawed way to compensate. So, because it doesn't measure any value at all. You can get returned by chasing uh, by chasing, chasing risk and losing money on average and not giving your investors any value at all. Anybody can take risk and get returns. That's not a business model. So, uh, so that's the content of the results, just taking risk. You know, there's a trade-off in these markets. So you just have to go back to the value proposition. In other words, what is the business and can it live as a business in this economy. Businesses in the economy go, have, can live. I mean, they cannot live without subsidies. We have to ask ourselves how to deliver the subsidies, but certainly delivering them in this way doesn't make sense. Governance problems in back. The hope is that shareholder governance will kick in a little bit more when shareholders bear more downside than they are. And if you put more loss absorption, at least there won't be the collateral damage. So the, it will be contained within the bank that, that, that they can lose up to 20% and still not go bankrupt. So the problems may go beyond, beyond but I am not sure exactly how to solve them. I would pay atten close attention to the governance uh, structure of banks. And I think that even the media uh, participates in this by focusing so much on earnings and returns. These are unadjusted for risk. And so, uh, and so they, they give, you know, as Colin Meyer would have it, the whole shareholder value concept, which we saw also in Enron, that's been sort of a mantra in the last 30 years, has given rise to, you know, they call it short-termism, but it has to do with the way they measure things and the way that actual incentives are given and the way performance is judged, which ends up depending on accounting measures and other profitability measures that sometimes are just made up or sometimes are based on, on rules such that if you structure the risk to kind of book their returns early and postpone, you know, backload the risk, then you just hope that you, you know, you get out of there before it hits or nobody traces it back to what you did. So uh, it, it becomes kind of an issue of, of frequency of measurements and, and things of that sort and how risks is structured. Hello, uh, Andrew Baxter. I'm a retired engineering director um, interested in the banking crisis. So this book was written for me, and I think it's a very clear explanation of the, the problems of the banking system and also the solutions. Thank you. 
but I was worried. I've now read it twice, and I had wow. difficulty accepting that no such obvious solutions have not been broadcast. And it wasn't until I wrote, read Martin Wolf in the Financial Times endorsing it that I actually believed it. So my, my question is... Why How is it possible, bank, yes. yes. Why hasn't the banking industry put a contract out in your life? Or secondly, I, I follow you on Twitter, and I haven't been able to find any intellectual arguments from the banking system against what you said. Why is that happening? Why is it not happening? Today I got emailed just on the way here from uh, one of the more recent uh, reviewers who's actually an ex-banker, 40 years uh, in banking, and who, who asked me precisely the question you asked me, is there an intellectual argument against uh, what you're saying? And it really is, it sort, of, it, it sort of is like the emperor's new clothes. I mean, it really is shocking. I've stepped into banking and Charles was there, and I'm like, what, what are they saying and why are they saying it? What's going on? And so I, I can tell you that I'm still shocked sometimes. And I don't judge what goes on in people's head and what they understand and don't understand. I really don't have a great answer for you. How come such obvious stuff is denied and misunderstood? It, you know, you, people believed that the earth is flat for a long time too. Uh, you wouldn't know to be wrong. Uh, thank you for your talk. Yesterday, the CEO of HSBC suggested we may be entering calmer waters. Do you agree with that? May this explain why much of the regulation recently proposed has been watered down? And is this an exceptional one-off crisis that is ending now? I didn't quite get the question. I'm sorry, I didn't... The, the, the CEO of HSBC suggested that we may be entering calmer waters oh. now with it for the industry. <laughs> and that, that was announcing the, uh, the first quarter results yesterday. So do you agree with that? And may this be uh, a symptom of why the regulation, recent regulation is being watered down? And is, is it a case of the, uh, the, this crisis being uh, an exceptional one-off event that is finishing now. This is a favorite narrative. Everything's fine now. Uh, everything looked good in 2006 too. Everything looked good for Cyprus months before. When the risk hits, uh, it's, it's, it's too late. And what we explain also in the book, and it's quite obvious once you see it, uh, especially if you borrow at uh, cheap rates, uh, it's, the upside is magnified. So when you just surpass your borrowing rate, you get, make a lot per dollar. So your return can look really, really good for a while. Uh, our uh, imaginary borrower, Kate, uh, those who read the book know who I'm talking about, um, who, through whom we make a lot of the points, uh, when we talk about guarantees and subsidies and safety net, she has an aunt named Claire, and, uh, and she gets to borrow very... Uh, uh, cheaply as a result of her aunt guaranteeing her that, and she re resists having equity and all that. And so the bankers have uh, a story, and uh, it's they want you to believe that. So usually in banking, uh, I tell, uh, I try to tell reporters and others that uh, when people say things, and I have other stories from other uh, fields as well, an example in which nonsense won a policy debate a stupid policy debate about accounting in the U.S., about expensing of executive stock options. That was also this surreal Twilight Zone debate about nothing. 
that got into Congress and politics until it changed and the politics changed. So the point there was it took the amazing thing about this crisis is that about this situation right now is that five years later we're still in this in this place where we we allowed this nonsense to 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 pervade the debate and this has been shocking and disturbing to me that we would miss out on beneficial reform uh, because of nonsense that people don't quite appreciate uh, are winning uh, uh, the debate. I do not, to get to your question, I do not believe that everything's fine. I believe that, uh, you know, times can look fine for, for a little while, but the risks are building up, and that's exactly when the risks build up, is when it seems fine. That's the nature of taking risk works until it doesn't. I'm, I'm getting tired because I was up all last night. So I'm going to take three more questions. First one there, then there, and then there. I'd be happy to stay afterwards, by the way, so we can send yeah, Charles to bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi, I'm a regulatory yes. lawyer, and um, it seems that there's two key elements to your strategy, one of which is the equity or transition to a changed equity model, and the second is governance, which reduces risk. But to me, there seems to be a third element, and I just wondered how it fitted into your overall picture or picture that you paint in your book, which is how you envisage act the activities of banks changing. Because what seems to be is that, or what you seem to be suggesting is that once the banks have 20 to 30 percent equity, they can do what they've been doing recently, and that, that the absorption or that will just automatically absorb the loss. But to me, there seems a third strategy, which is how activities of banks have to be how the mindset of bankers and banking has to be altered and in part, and as part of that, an improved regulatory structure. One of the things we explain in the book is that banking uh, takes risks even by just traditional banking. So it's not just the, 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 the truth that derivatives and other things allow you to the magnification of risks, the scaling of the risk, the more so than loans. But, but Real estate crisis and governments failing have led banks to fail for hundreds of years. And so, uh, and, and in our theory and in our insight of, into banking, banks have never been fully efficient. In other words, they always want to put too little of their own money at risk, and so they always want to live a little bit too dangerously uh, forever. And now, of course, it's global and it's more difficult than whatever. But we go for the funding mix because it's a no-brainer basically, to begin with. So there, there is such a, such a big gain for, for basically only good things and hardly any bad things, just correcting, correcting, and correcting all the things that are wrong and getting both safety and health at the same time, that it also feels, it, we also believe that regulation of activities is much more difficult and costly to do. And we are in favor of sensible cost-effective regulation. And so you could see in the Volcker Rule in the U.S. how messy this can get. Of course, the Volcker Rule had exemptions that make it impossible to implement. And so it, it was written badly, and so the result is they're having a very hard time making uh, anything workable out of it. And so, but you can see the difficulty. When you say, I want to break up the banks, I viscerally want to break up the banks, exactly how? And exactly how will you address the interconnectedness? In the U.S., there's a great nostalgia for Glass-Steagall. And we explain in the book, the, these quiet years uh, were you can be attributing them to good luck that there wasn't a lot of volatility in the markets. There wasn't a real estate crisis. There wasn't a lot of interest rate or exchange rate volatility. So it was just a, a period in the world where things aligned and the stars were aligned in a particular way. It doesn't, and banking, of course, we didn't have shareholder value. We had 363 banking, all of that. So it was boring. But 
Uh, it's hard to, the, the Glass-Steagall was eroded way before it was abolished. And it was the small banks that were sending money to the money center banks. So the interconnectedness was already built, built in. So there's a lot more, more to say, but it's just harder. So I would just watch the activities, but I would just want them to be more normal. We don't usually go into the day-to-day -day businesses of other. Uh, so intrusive regulations just hard. I mean, the regulators can't keep up with this, and so it's just hard to do. So we go for stuff that we're already doing. We just have to do better, first and foremost. Hi, uh, Aliou Barry from uh, Oxford. Uh, my question has got to do actually what you just uh, started talking about. Uh, so in your presentation, you talked about a too-big-to-fail banks. Now, uh, let's see here. Some people are already talking about breaking up the banks, yes. you know, the traditional high-street yeah. retail commercial banks from the uh, investment banks. They have much more complex uh, derivatives and uh, other instruments like uh, securities, mm -hmm. which was part of uh, what started the uh, mortgage uh, issues uh, in the U.S. So I don't know, what's your, what's your take on that, on uh, breaking up the banks? And uh, secondly, uh, for the purpose of this exercise with your book, I know you've been in academia for a while. You have a lot of knowledge and experience. Did you actually engage bankers in this process to see exactly what they take, senior executives, who have actually been on the ground, who have been exposed? Because sometimes the you know, theory is mm -hmm. a bit different mm -hmm. from uh, what's out there mm -hmm. in, the, in the real world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just very quickly on breaking up. I, I, it can't be the only thing you do because of what I said. You can have a, a dangerous system composed of lots of little banks that all fail at the same time. The advantage of, uh, so one statement is clear. The big banks are not more efficient. The hope is that if you remove the subsidies, they might break up on their own and more naturally other market forces like conglomerates broke uh, when they were inefficient. Right now, there are no incentives to break up because it's such beneficial uh, it's so beneficial to be so big, and you get such benefits from everybody just not worrying about, about uh, being paid. Uh, the advantages I see in, in, in trying to break up is, is indeed that you can regulate different entities differently. I would put very, unlike Vickers, which tries to say we will not bail out uh, the investment banks outside the, the ring fence, I would want to put incredibly high capital requirements on these banks that don't even have deposits to begin with because they really have no business uh, being funded with uh, so much leverage when they can uh, in put their own money into derivatives and not uh, board money that might get this in, in, entangled within, within the system and, and sort of, you know, go, goes, in other words, they should gamble with their own money. Um, so, so that's, that's that. Um, what, what, how, what was your other question? How did you frame uh, it? Oh, whether I engage. Well, I, uh, I want to talk to everybody, and I have tried to talk to everybody. A lot of people within this system just prefer not to engage. And that was part of the motivation for the book, is that we found a disturbing lack of engagement. Everybody had their story. Everybody had their narrative. They didn't want to engage with any more discussion or anybody challenging their narrative. So the narrative of the Fed, for example, this is not to go to bankers. Bankers were saying things that are just wrong, and they might believe them. I don't know. People said to me they don't understand, which shocked me, but I don't know what people know or what they want to know or what they want to admit they know or whatever. So, uh, so I just can't judge why people say what they say. 
But, for example, the Fed has a narrative, if you read Ben Bernanke's book published uh, just the same time as, as I by the same publisher, uh, which is a set of lectures that are available for free, by the way. Um, he starts the story by how he saved the system. He doesn't go back to why the system got so fragile and why the risk built up. It's not a convenient story for him to talk about. So what you have is, as we discussed, convenient narratives that you know, serve those who want to tell them. Uh, and so there are a lot of people spinning the stories, and that's the thing with financial markets. We don't have a black, we don't have a black box like a, an airplane crash, and we can trace back precisely whose fault it was that, that something happened. So people just tell the story that works for them. The banks like the story where it was just a confluence of things, and uh, you know, yeah, 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 there were some issues, but everything's fine now. That's the way they want you to, 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 to think about it to think everything is better now, and that's good enough. That's the story. So I have engaged, and I engage with everybody, and occasionally I say to the bankers, uh, read the book and tell me then what you think. And I would talk to uh, the community banker in a conference, and I would say, you're going to have to come and take my corporate finance course. Uh, and uh, then we can talk about how banking fits or doesn't. And I, I would ask him, what do you think would happen if you retained your earnings? Could you not lend? What would happen? And that's when they actually run out of answers. I sat next to a, a president of a regional Fed in the U.S., and when, he got, when, when, when the end of dinner came, I said, um, let's just forget about required returns and all this other stuff. Let's just talk about your small bank here, and you have to tell me now how the world will be a worse place if your bank did not pay out to its shareholders for a little while and built up its equity. And he just stopped in his track. He never thought of it. And he said, maybe you have a point. At which point, because everybody already left, I said he can leave too. <laughs> Uh, can I ask you a question about today? Yes. Um, you know, we're in a, a, an environment of very loose monetary conditions, but yet that's not translating into the real economy. The transmission mechanism appears to be broken. Um, is that just that, that there's no demand for credit, no one wants to borrow? Or is it that the supply of credit is being restricted uh, because banks can't lend profitably because of the high regulation and because of the quest for equity? What would be your solution today to really get loan growth and growth returning to, 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 to the Europe? Let's be clear. The banks have plenty of money to lend. As I said, JP Morgan played in London Whale with deposit money. But lend profitably. Oh, lend profitably? Well, the question is, uh, what does it take to lend, to lend profitably? They borrow very cheaply, the banks. So the question is, at what rate do they lend? And why isn't that profitable? Are there no businesses to lend to? Uh, this is a tough question, but uh, again, in my view, banks don't lend because they are highly distressed. This is a debt overhang problem, and because the risk weights send them away from business lending. So in other words, you combine indebtedness of the banks themselves with flawed risk weights, and they choose something else to do with their money. And so the lack of lending is, is, is itself 
a result of flawed incentives. So you basically get in their heads and you see what they want to do. And it's just not interesting for them to make But, but would more equity solve that today? Because that's the, what we need. Well, it can't see. hurt it, that's for sure. Uh, so by giving them more money, I'm trying to move them to a situation in which they'll see more of the upside to them. Because the problem of the indebted entity, the debt overhang problem, is a problem in which the, uh, the decision maker when they make good investment, and in, in our book we, we have our Kate, our borrower, not wanting to invest in her house because her investment in the house will benefit her creditor at her expense. So banks don't want to do the low-risk, positive net present value investments because they are the ones investing, but the benefit goes to the creditor, first of all, because it makes the debt safer. So when they are distressed, they become conflicted on two counts, they would avoid making investments that benefit the creditors at their expense, and they would want to make investors that benefit them at the expense of creditors. In other words, the fundamental conflict in banking is a borrower-creditor conflict. And that conflict applies to any heavy borrowers, and banks are forever in that range. So they are inefficient because they're conflicted with their creditors or taxpayers all the time. And by having more equity, I want to reduce that conflict so that there's more ownership of the decisions up and down, and therefore they make decisions more like an owner would with their own money. In other words, the, the gold standard for decisions is the all-equity firm. That's when you don't have the agency costs or the distortions of, of high leverage. Banks are always in the, in the world in which they are, the banker is conflicted with the depositors and the creditors and the taxpayers. That colors everything that they do. And so that helps, exp so when you go into their heads and their incentives, you see why with the transmission mechanism is broken. We, we've, we've reached um, 8 o'clock, and I think we really do have to bring the formal uh, part of the session to an end. I realize that there are some of you who would still like to ask further questions, but Annette, I, I'm, I know we'll be happy to stay and answer some individually outside. There are also copies of her book outside, and if you want her to... Uh, actually to, to uh, sign them as the author, um, and she's going to be prepared to do that. But she has uh, given us a marvelous occasion, answering many of your questions fully and wonderfully. And uh, before we bring this to an end, can we thank her in the standard way? Thank you very much.